Welcome to People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose. People of Purpose is a podcast of inspiring people whose stories help you see things differently, live with intentionality, elevate the way you participate in the world, and take the necessary leaps in your life to seek and find your passions. Come with us and develop the courage to wholeheartedly pursue your purpose and unleash your truest potential. It didn't take me hardly a second to write down one sentence about why I believe I'm on the planet. And after I wrote it, I thought, okay, that's pretty cool that I could articulate something with that kind of clarity at that early in my life and to know that it was going to be, it would be the plumb line by which I measured my impact in the world. And for me, the issue of emerging or incumbent leader is not which are you, it's which are you when. There are days I'm the millennial and you're the incumbent leader. Before anything else, we're truth tellers. And sometimes the truth hurts, but you know, the truth won't set your free if you don't tell it. Leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. Ron Carucci is a best-selling author of eight books and popular contributor at Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Ron is an expert on a number of topics, including the journey from startup to scale-up of a young business, leading massive transformation in more mature organizations, advice on rising through an organization from middle management to executive leadership, and more. Ron led a 10-year longitudinal study on executive transition to find out why more than 50% of leaders fail within their first 18 months of appointment and uncovering the four differentiating capabilities that set successful leaders apart. Those findings are highlighted in his groundbreaking Amazon number one book, Rising to Power, co-authored with Eric Hansen. These findings are also summarized by Ron in the popular HBR article and were selected by HBR as one of 2016's Ideas That Mattered Most. Ron Carucci is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, where he works with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping some of the world's most influential executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth, Ron has worked in more than 25 countries on four continents. In addition to being a regular contributor to HBR and Forbes, and being featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Business Insider, MSNBC, Inc., Business Week, Smart Business, and Thought Leaders. Ron is also a two-time TEDx speaker. I love Ron's message and nuance and dynamic understanding of what is great leadership. He has exceptional ideas for how to empower leaders and employees alike. The part of our interview that particularly resonated with me was the second half on millennials and bridging the generational divide. I think he's spot on in his analysis of how millennials are misunderstood and how we can better find our voice and develop a compelling vision that will be supported by the generation in power now. I'm interested to hear if you agree with Ron. I think he's got so many excellent tips on how to rise into power that I for sure am taking into heart. His enthusiasm for the work he does is zestful and inspiring. He's the kind of guy I would love to work under and be mentored by. Without further ado, I'm excited to bring you Ron Karuchi. Hey, Tanner, how are you? Good to meet you. 
I'm great. Yeah, good to meet you too. Thank you for uh, catching up with me after you just had a meeting in the Philippines. Now you're having one in Thailand, so it's exciting. You're traveling the world today. It's my Pacific Rim evening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you have a very impressive resume. You've interviewed 2,600 high-performing senior executives over 10 years, written eight best-selling books, consulted executives for 30 years. Why do you devote so much of your life to producing great executives? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I think since I was little, you know, the organization of human endeavor, the way human beings come together to, to do something in, in a sh for shared purpose or for common aspiration has always fascinated me. It's always um, made me in awe of what humans are capable of. I think we also see that when you take four walls and a roof, put humans in it, it can get pretty dysfunctional and icky too. Um, but I think watching and then somebody, the role of somebody guiding those efforts and somebody unleashing the greatness of most people, um, it's, it's, a, it's a very sacred work. And I think the privilege of coming alongside leaders and accompanying them on very audacious journeys and very disruptive transformations and helping them be uh, the best versions of their, their themselves so that they can get the best versions of the people they lead, it's a very privileged role. I mean, I wake up every morning and I get to make the world better than I found it every day um, and leave people and their hearts, minds, and souls um, hopefully in better shape uh, than when I woke up. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty cool job. Yeah, it sounds very cool. I, I think I would love that job. It, it's really cool that you work at such a meta level. Like you, you are kind of the ultimate leader, um, but you're, you're also like the teacher of leaders. That, that hybridization sounds very fulfilling. Is it fulfilling? Well, it's extremely fulfilling. I, I get to be a learner as well. I get to be the one that also um, learns with those leaders and learns from them and then learns on their behalf. And part of the reason I do so much writing is not because I'm a writer. I make my living as a consultant, but my writing is my way of learning. It's my way of um, going and leaning into really persistent and tractable problems that my clients are facing to better understand them, to understand why certain things are strange or odd or off. Yeah. And, and, so, and so learning about them, I then have better answers and better ideas for my clients who are living with those problems. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's awesome. So how has your purpose evolved as you've become more successful? Like you can't, this isn't, this doesn't seem like a role you can just hop in and, and just start doing like how has your purpose evolved maybe as you've climbed the rungs to being able to be in this position many years ago when writing your life mission statement was a was a thing i was <laughs> in probably in my 20s when my mentor had she sent me to a workshop on that and i, I kind of rolled my eyes that was kind of cheesy but i did it and they say okay let's they give you ideas and principles and then said write, write down your life mission statement and what was so fascinating was it didn't take me hardly a second to write down one sentence about why I believe I'm on the planet. And after I wrote it, I thought, okay, it's pretty cool that I could articulate something that with that kind of clarity at that early in my life and to know that it was going to be, it would be the plumb line by which I measured my impact in the world. And what I wrote was, I want to be a great agent of change and I want to make other great agents of change. Mm. Uh, and uh, whether that, is influencing people in, in my community or in my friend groups or in my family or in my client groups or in my organizations that I consult to or teaching grad school, you know, which I, I did for 20 years um, and teaching people who are in organizational behavior or wanting to be do change work. 
um, or it's mentoring younger consultants or mentoring younger leaders. Um, you know, that plumb line has always been a, 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 guide, a guidepost for me to sort of shape my choices or shape how I spend my time. And, oh, and what gives me energy, what gives me real you know, um, joy. Um, and when I'm doing things that aren't, you know, clearly mm-hmm. attached, I'm bored, I'm frustrated, I'm, I'm unfulfilled. So um, I, I think so. I, I think as I've become a better agent of change over time and learned uh, and been tempered and made mistakes, um, and I've learned what it takes to really mentor and cultivate and bring out agency in others, I've gotten better at it. Um, I, you know, when I wrote it down, I certainly wasn't that good at it. Um, I just knew it was what I wanted. Um, and then, you know, as you grow and stretch and learn and skin your knees and get up and try again, you realize that, you know, as good as you thought you were, there was, you know, as, as much as you learn, you realize the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. Right. So yeah, let's break that down a little bit. What do you mean by change? What is this change you're, you're striving for? Is that a change in an individual, change in an organization? What is that change? We define it in three ways. Um, and our code language for it is within, between, among. Within means deep within the heart and mind of another. Um, what, we, what we call the operative narrative. You know, with the tapes playing in your head that mm-hmm. wire your behavior. And, uh, you know, our, our, the origins of our behavior emanate at much deeper levels than we understand. And so if you want to help somebody change behavior or change how they lead or change how they're seen in the world, you got to do, do a little deep digging. And so uh, that's part of how we affect transformation. Between is relational, right? So it's between individuals. It's between parts of an organization, you know, supply chain and logistics, marketing and sales, you know, in a nonprofit, it could be fundraising and operations, but there are seams in organizations, places where people and groups and aspirations connect, sometimes collide, sometimes conflict, sometimes have border wars. But you know, so change between is about how do you make more whole the parts? And then change among is systemically, so strategically, culturally, organizationally, how do you create you know, system change? in a community, in a town, in a city, in a university, in a, in a corporation, in a country. Um, and we know that transformation only happens and sticks if you're doing it on all three levels all the time. Many people will do change within. They'll do coaching or they'll do ther- therapeutic work. They'll do change between. They'll be team builders or coaches. And they'll do change among. They'll be strategists or they'll do culture work. But for us, um, if you're not working at all three of those levels, it's probably not going to stick. It might you might get a momentary flash of brilliance, but it won't go. It won't last. So because the context won't allow it to. And so for us, the privilege of being able to always be monitoring transformational change on all three of those levels uh, is what's important. I didn't always know that. Right, so I'm, you know, some of the mistakes I've made in the past were because I was focused on one or two of those and not all three, or didn't ignored one and didn't understand the implications of that. Yeah, so it seems like a very integrative approach that, yeah, that, that gets it done, and it sounds like that change is is sort of towards effectiveness or efficiency, or is it purpose or what is it? So interesting, who gets to define the aspiration, right? Right. Yeah. 
for our clients, it's often about their own personal effectiveness, their own personal um, purpose in the world. But sometimes it's their organization and its mission or its um, its performance aspirations and what it's trying to become or what it's trying to be in the world to whoever it serves. Um, sometimes it's something's broken. Sometimes right. there's pain or there's a deficit or there's um, dysfunction. And so sometimes it's in part corrective. We find that change that's only corrective is usually short-lived. So there has to be something aspirational based in desire there. But sometimes it has to be, you know, in part repair work done. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a variety of aspirations that um, I know that my job is not to impose that. Um, now, if I hear in the aspiration self-interest or questionable motives or some, the, the dark side of somebody coming out, I'm going yeah. to call the question. And I either, I either won't help or I'll, I'll confront why that is. Yeah, what is that question that you call with? How do you confront? You seem very committed to your own aspirations here at the expense of others. Am I, is, that, is that what I'm seeing? Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you, you've raised the issue several times of your own reputation or your own visibility or your own influence. You've talked a lot about your bonus check this year. You know, I'm, I'm going to point out the patterns. I'm going to say, I, I hear a whole lot of self-involvement here. I'm a little concerned that I haven't heard of anything about all the other people who who need you to be something that you don't want to be. Huh, yeah, that's that's fair. Uh, so yeah, we're not going to, we, we are, before anything else, we're truth tellers. And sometimes the truth hurts, but you know, the truth won't set you free if you don't tell it. Uh, and so, um, and sometimes, you know, I, I think there are some leaders who aren't a good match for us. And so, I mean, I, we often do our best and now after having made our own mistakes, avoid those kinds of leaders. But sometimes we get what appears to be a decent relationship or a good chance to have an impact, but then we get into it and realize this is probably not the right gig for us, and so we walk away. Hmm. So you're a truth teller. That that sounds a bit a little bit like journalist or, or some sort of outside objective observer, but that at the same time you're trying to have like a, an impact or an influence within that. How do you exert your purpose and your intentionality into a company when they maybe have a different purpose and intentionality of their own? Well, my, my, so my purpose is different. So my purpose is to maximize their impact. So as an outsider, I have the advantage of being able to say things insiders can't. Yeah, uh, right. And so my, my sort of, the, you can't, I mean, ancient wisdom says you can't be a prophet in your own land, and I think there's some truth to that. But I can be, a, I can come in as a prophet, and I can, I'm, you know, well, what got me fired from companies inside got me paid well outside. So I took the hint eventually and realized that as an outsider, I'm expected. And leaders don't often get told the truth. They don't have, they don't have access to unvarnished insights and, and hard truths because people politically inside don't feel comfortable sharing those. But I, as an outsider, am expected to bring that. And it would, it would be cruel of me not to, right? My, you know, um, my, it's in my client's best interest. So my purpose is to serve their purpose. Um, and to know that I have to care about the things they care about. I have to at least care that they care about them. I may not care about the product they're making, or I may not care about a particular, you know, a particular service they're providing. Right. Uh, I certainly have to not be opposed to it, right? I'm not going to work with somebody who's making a product I think is hurting people or exploiting people or providing a service that's right. um, uh, dishonest. But, but my job is to make them have optimal impact and be their best in what they're doing. That's my purpose. Yeah. 
Can you tell me the story of how you got fired from being an insider that and that that forced you to be an expert outsider? Yeah, so uh, you know, three times. Um, once I volunteered out, but um, yeah, so I, when I was my kids were younger, I started collecting these things called severance packages, and my kids were like, <laughs> oh, "That means more time with dad." <laughs> what it meant was, you know, and I think in in some cases I was just naive, Tanner. You yeah. know, I thought when I was hired for these roles as internal change work. They want to get better. They want to hear the truth. They want to have an honest look at what's not working so they can get better. And I just assumed that. Um, but what I didn't, a number of things I hadn't learned or been tempered with, um, it wasn't that I needed to be politic, but I needed to be a little bit politically savvy. And just because you have an insight or an observation doesn't mean you need to verbalize it right then and there. Uh, and sometimes you have to create a pathway to prepare people to be ready to hear truths. And I didn't know that. <laughs> and so... Um, you know, in several, in three different organizations, I got caught in very political quagmires, very difficult political quagmires, where um, in one case, I volunteered because they were doing a downsizing and a layoff. I, I think I was actually, had a great standing there, but I wanted, it was time to go. In the next one, it was highly political. And I knew from the beginning, it wasn't a good match for me, but I went anyway. And that was my dumb move. And then the third one, it just became a political warfare between two leaders that I, I became the pawn in. Um, and, and some of my truth-telling behavior, um, you know, they weren't ready to hear. They didn't want to hear right. honest looks at their own corruption, at their own dishonesty and deceit and their own incompetence. Um, and I, I, was, I, mean, I was always respectful. I was always, you know, analytical and data-driven and respectful about how I presented it. I was never you know, an ass about it, but um, it wasn't always welcomed. And so, and then I began to realize, oh, they expect outsiders to do this, not insiders. And there's a great role for insiders within organizations to have great impact. Um, just not the one I want to have. Right. So what advice would you have for a younger version of yourself or, or a younger Ron like of, of this generation? say some t mid 20 year old kid that that does really want to be a truth teller and does really want to exert you know a lot of purpose within the workplace when there's a lot of politicization is the, is really the only option to step away or is there something that you would recommend well you know for me it's a great question Tanner I think for me I realized that I was going to have to express my passion for organizations by not being part of one but <laughs> you could have <laughs> but you could have a passion for organizations and still be part of one as long as you understand the limitations of that, right? So there are there are great things about being insider, about going the distance in changes that I don't get to experience, right? So there's trade-offs. I do think it's important that you not compromise your voice. So as you find your voice and find your credibility, um, you have to build deep relationships of trust with people above you. They've got to know you have their best interest at heart, you, that you're not just there with your own agenda. And too often, internal change agents do have their own agenda. They want to have impact. They want to be known. They want to be seen. And they don't realize that inadvertently they're exploiting their leader. Mm -hmm. not, right? They, yeah. It's a fine line. And so you've got to learn to be patient, to build the trust and relationships and earn your – in any organization, you're going to have to earn your shots. Yeah. Um, and serve well, and serve well, and care and commit. Um, never pull your punches to the point where you've compromised your integrity. Because if you're doing that, then you're no better than them. Um, but also recognize that sometimes the insight you might have might be provocative in a way that you have to ask yourself, can the relationship I have with this person hold that insight? Yeah. Because if the relationship is too weak to hold 
the weight and the power of the insight you want to offer, then you have to build a relationship first before you can deposit an insight that's provocative into it. And too often we think the merits of the insight will hold their own. And that's just not how life works. It seems, I, I know in your TED Talk that I listened to, you talk about how the power is not so much in the information you have, it's, it's a, an insightful interpretation of that information. Um, do you yeah. find, you know, more of a, a veteran executive would, would feel uh, challenged or, or scared or kind of rivaled by an underling that brings an insightful interpretation like that? It's a great, it's a great question, Tanner. I actually think if you've built a relationship with them and they know you have their best interest at heart and you've made it clear that you do, they, they can hear you. You should be grateful that that happened, not, not, not indignant. You, you screwed up, not him. Now go apologize. I was in a routine one-on-one -on -one with my, my client, a CEO of a large consumer electronics company. And during it, his uh, administrative assistant buzzed him and said, hey, Chad's here. You asked to see him. Do you want me to send him in? She sends Chad and I ask if, I, if he wants me to step out. He said, no, no, it's not a big deal. So I'm thinking I'll get to eavesdrop. But my client pulled a file out of um, his desk and said, hey, Chad, I, I'm about to send the capital plan to the board for IT next year. It's, it's a big budget. I just want to know. I, I said to you, did you have a chance to look at it? Are you okay with it? And Chad wasn't talking. And so I was kind of like peeking up from my device going, what's going on? His face was all contorted. And he looks kind of perplexed. And he said, I don't know what, what it is you're really asking me here. I know you sent that to the board yesterday because they already told me. So I don't know what you want my opinion on. It's, if you want me to tell you it's going to be okay and I'll make it work, then I'll tell you, I'll, okay, I'll make it work. But don't ask me for an opinion you're, you don't really need because you've already done, made your choice. Mm. So what do you want from me? And then he just walked out. And my client went red in the face and turned to me and said, do you see the kind of disrespect I have to put up from these blank, 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 millennial, um, I, you know, in front of you, and I said, whoa, 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 time, time out here. What is it you just think happened here? He, yeah. I was disrespected, and that's not the way I need to be treated. I'm the CEO. I'm like, whoa, no, 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 no. I think you're in the wrong movie, pal. No, no. In my movie, the script says you just got caught. You try to pull a ruse over on him on a decision you thought you were making him feel good and included in a choice he has to now carry out on your behalf, but you'd already made it. Yeah. So he caught you. So it's called faux inclusion, and it usually doesn't work. And so your intention might have been remotely okay, but you, you, can't, you, you, you botched it because you got caught. Now you need to walk down the hall and apologize to him, not be angry, because he trusted your relationship with the truth. Um, and he showed you a great respect, not disrespect. My client walked down the hall and made the apology and swallowed it hard. And the two of them became incredibly close. And, and that, that young colleague became quite a confidant of his. And he, he learned to bounce ideas off him and he knew he'd get the truth. Um, so I do think, uh, I, I do think senior leaders can hear it. And I do want to be, no senior leader wants to be lied to. Nobody senior leader wants to be told what they want to hear. And I know that as they get higher, data gets thinner. Um, and the truth becomes harder to come by. And people are manipulating data and they don't have access to truth anymore and so i think they find it refreshing now if you come in in an obnoxious condescending arrogant you know in your face kind of way and it sounds like you're just being judgmental then sure you're probably not going to get listened to as well but if you care and if you're fact-based and if you truly have the agenda of trying to make things better and trying to help that leader succeed or help them execute what they're responsible for they're going to be they're going to be appreciative of it they might get bristly and defensive and, you know, like anybody would, but you got to stick with it. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. So 
how, who keeps you in check? Who's your leader? Who Who's a mentor or something that keeps you so aligned to being successful and purposeful in, in what you do? I love it. I love it, the question. So two years ago, I hired a coach. I thought, I have to take my own medicine here. Uh, and in part was because... Uh, to your question before about the kinds of clients I work with, I was not attract. I was attracting sociopaths, and I didn't want to work with them anymore. <laughs> I, I was. I wasn't getting the kinds of leaders and clients who were purpose driven, who were caring, and who were good hearted men and women. And to to the same degree, I was getting the people that I thought oh, I can't do this. Too old. And so I thought I need to take my own medicine and find out why that is. And I hired a, a wonderful coach. She and I are now beginning our third year of work together, um, and it's an incredible source of accountability. Um, and, uh, I get some hard assignments and I get, I, you know, I, I, there's accountability there and it's, it's been one of the most amazing experiences of my career at this point in it to ask for help and to not coast, you know, to know that even now I have much more to learn and grow and there's more I want to become and I'm not finished yet. And, um, if, if you had told me two years ago, some of the things I was going to do, as a result of working with her, I would have told you, you were out of your mind. I probably would, if she if she had said, "Here's what we're going to do together," I would have fired. I would have said, "Yeah, no, you're delusional." And she she was very wise about how she very tempered and very calculatedly, you know, brought me along because yeah. she knew that I probably, I probably would have bailed. <laughs> what were some of the the results of her ambition that that you thought was impossible? Well, so the TED talk you saw was certainly one of them. Uh, I did two TED Talks in two weeks. That was dumb. So I've written 58 articles for Forbes, 25 articles for HBR, did an author's a Google Talk. Now 70 or 80 podcasts have uh, have attracted very different kinds of clients. I'm much more scrutinizing of them. Um, and have access to thought leaders in my network that I would have never had access to. Or never had the guts to even reach out to. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm curating content and conversations with people that are fascinating and amazing and inspiring. Yeah. And none of that, none of that was true two years ago. Why um, is that important for you to reach out to more of the the people outside of your industry with a TED Talk or with like an article on Forbes or something? Well, there's two practical things, Tenor. One is so that those the clients I want to work with can find me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was my echo chamber was very small, and I was you know one of her di- one of my coach's diagnostic points was I you know your only if if your goal was to be the best kept secret in consulting you've achieved it. Um, <laughs> she said you're only you only talk to people or interact with people who already know you. She did this very complex analysis, and she said the only people you talk to are people who already know you. So the the clients you say you want can't find you. Yeah. Secondly, it's the, the social proof of my peer set, right? So it's I, I, I have access to new thinking and new mindsets of people that teach me and where I learn from and broaden my thinking. So it's establishing a very different peer set for myself professionally. Mm. Huh, that's awesome. Yeah. So, yeah, why have you been able to uh, you've been able to kind of go away from sociopathic people into purposeful people? I'm trying. I'm trying. Congratulations. <laughs> and it's not that I think this, it's not that I think the sociopaths don't need to deserve help. I just don't want it to be from me. Right. It's painful. It's too painful for me to get up in the morning and, you know, to see a client's name and my caller ID and, and just have my stomach turned to a knot. And I know at some point I'm going to have to fire them. I'm going to have to walk away because I'm now compromising myself or this is uh, all I'm doing is enabling you to hurt people. And I can't, I can't do that anymore. Yeah. I wanted to kind of get at that. It's, it, you talk about how leadership should just be, you should ask this question. How can I help? 
Um, and you should be of service to your employees. You should make them feel like they, like you truly care about them, that, that their success is your success. How do yep. you counsel people on, on getting overstretched? Um, how do you know when it's time to, to come back into yourself and kind of just take care of yourself a little bit? So I think self-care is a very critical aspect, especially when you're an executive. You know, people get really angry over the perks and the money and the compensation. And maybe there are some unfair imbalances in, in some of those. But for the most part, those are also ruthlessly unforgiving, visibly exposing, very difficult jobs. Yeah. And most, most people don't see the private suffering um, that they do. And most people don't understand that if you're going to be a leader, especially if you're going to be an executive leader, you are going to suffer and sacrifice. And so one of the things, especially if you're in the CEO chair, I tell my clients, I want to know the name of your nutritionist, the name of your trainer, and the name of your therapist, if I'm going to be your consultant. Wow, coach. really? So those are requirements for them to have those in place. And we're, going to, and we're all going to talk. And I tell them, if you don't want those things in your life, um, you're, you're, you're foolish. I, you know, at some point, I'm going to have to ask the name of your cardiologist then, and I'd rather not. And, <laughs> and so, or, you're, or worse, your oncologist. So you need, you know, to be taking care of your mind, your body, and your soul um, if I'm going to take care of your leadership. And if I know you're not taking care of those things, um, I, my work is compromised. Um, and so one client I worked with who was like, a, was like rolling his eyes, like, I have to really? I'm like, well, oh, I'm going to charge you more. If you're not going to have those people in your life, you're going to, you're going to pay me all their fees anyway. Yeah. So you might as well talk to them. Sometimes I have to go hire them. Sometimes I have to go. I have to introduce them to a therapist or a nutritionist or a trainer or somebody. Um, and and you know if if they already have a gym and a, a workout routine and they then I'm okay. I'll excuse you from the trainer part, but but I want a text of you. I want a selfie picture of you on the treadmill at six in the morning. I want to see you there. Uh, wow, such a, a performance coach of you. That's cool. Have you had any wake up calls that have brought you closer into? into purpose because you maybe felt overstretched or weren't taking quite good enough care of yourself? So, the, so this past year, I lost 30 pounds. Oh, congratulations. And it was my coach, she said to me, what's your fitness goal for the year? You know, and I'm like, well, I probably need to lose some weight. And so <laughs> I, I, I knew I did. Um, I, so I, you know, I, 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 I was exercising. I work, I do work out regularly. Um, but I also recognize that traveling and, you know, the, 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 the mindless routine is you're walking through the airport and you stop in Hudson News and just pick up a few snacks for the plane. Knowing full well you're going to get a meal on the plane too. It's like a, okay. You just, I, I was like a, when I step, stepped back and took stock of how much I was eating and not thinking it was a big deal. It was, it was, it was mortifying. It was mortifying. Um, so, uh, yeah. Um, and also, you know, the TED Talk you watched um, so I'm the youngest of five in my family, but the TED Talk you watched, one of the interesting things about that talk, um, and if you actually, if you want to read it, um, I wrote a piece, my coach's assignment to me was, who do you want to be when you grow up at the end of last year? I, had a, I wrote a reflection piece on making promises instead of resolutions for this year, and it was my own reflections on some of, of, of how wonderful and how hard last year was, and it'll give you a, a good sense of my look into my own sense of self-care and purpose. But... Um, the day before that TED Talk, I, I flew in for my brother's funeral. So my brother passed away very suddenly. Um, oh, my. And um, it was torture. It's just, and it's the second sibling I've lost. Whew. And so I had to literally land back from his funeral where I spoke and walk onto that red circle. And I fought back a lot of tears before I walked onto that stage thinking about him. And 
um, it, those are wake up calls, right? You have to remember, you know, it, 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 those are the moments in life that, you know, sharply draw things into contrast and focus um, when they happen. And that's what life is, right? And so um, you, those are dig deep moments. Um, and then I had to walk off that red circle and two weeks later do it again. I have a whole different talk. What was the what was the underlying motivation that made you want, not want to just curl up in your bed and cry? Like, why did you want to go out there and 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 give that message? I did curl up in my bed and cry, but I also knew that was my talk to do, and I thought that's not going to honor my brother. And so, as I walked on stage, I looked up. I said, "This one's for you." And I thought about him, and then I thought about all the amazing people in my life who had carried me those, that week, and had helped me and supported me and encouraged me, and and made it possible. I tell you, when I agreed to do those two TED Talks, in my mind, incredibly naively, I thought, oh, TED Talks are just like public speaking. And it's just 12 minutes of public speaking. And I've done that before. So how hard could that be? That's not what it is. Why is a TED, TED Talk talks. different? You, you, you have to memorize. I mean, it's all memory. You have to know that talk. Yeah. There's no prompts. There's no content. There's a camera and a clock. Um, and that's it. And you have no assistance um and it's a lot of pressure um and and two different talks means you and i knew how much it took me to learn the 15 minutes of content you watched i mean i probably had delivered that talk maybe 300 times before that's how well i knew it but i knew i could not learn them both at the same time because i knew the risk of walking on stage and starting one or doing the other was high so but now i have two weeks I'm emotionally drained, and I have two weeks of offsites, two weeks of major client offsites to start over. I had been learning that one for seven weeks aggressively. And so now I'm like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to repeat this? It was a shorter talk. It was 12 minutes, but still. Um, you know, while, while With all-day major multi-hundred people offsite that I'm facilitating at night in the hotel for the next two weeks, um, I've got to do what I did in six weeks or seven weeks. Wow. Um, and those are the moments in life you dig deep and you have a lot of help and a lot of support and you ask for a lot of prayer <laughs> and, and, you t- and you have to get a massage and take care of yourself and hope hope, it, hope this is not the time in life you overstretched and overcommitted and are going to walk out and make a fool of yourself. But I was I was scared of that. Do you have any practical techniques you go to to, uh, to calm your mind or or like ease your emotions? Or yeah, I mean, just being able to get like restful sleep, or being able to like internalize information and memorize it. What do you do to? I give me healthy your, ones. <laughs> <laughs> you drink like ten lattes or something. Uh, that would be the least of them. Um, so well, so you know, I do have a community of people that I talk to, and and you make sure that I'm, I'm isolation is the biggest risk in those moments, right? And when people isolate, that's when they make really bad choices. So I make sure that I have. Even when I'm on the road, you know, people accompanying me. Um, I do take melatonin to sleep. Um, it is a big help. Um, and sleep, you know, whoever, some dummy at some point said, oh, as you get older, you need less sleep. That's bullshit. I have to believe it out. That's not the truth at all. You actually need, I don't know why somebody thought that, but I now am more relishing of sleep than I ever was in my life. How much sleep do you get well, every night? I, 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 I try for at least seven to eight hours. Um, the notion that, oh, people are like, oh, I can, I can get by on six now. I did get by on six and less, you know, of, and, and it didn't work. I was tired. 
So I think um, I find deep restful sleep even more important now than I ever did. Um, I just think I was younger and I could get away with not having it all the time and it didn't show as badly. Now I get really cranky and moody. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. Um, you know, my, my whole firm was like, oh, he didn't get any sleep. Um, so, um, I, you know, I, I'm in this year, I changed a lot of eating habits and I've maintained eating healthy and try and keep up with that. Um, do you do any meditation or anything like that? I do meditate. I do pray. Um, and I also begin, I, so one of the interesting rituals I have in the morning, uh, when I have coffee, but, um, I have a client down the hall in the conference room where the kitchen is. I have a, and I tell this story in the LinkedIn piece. I'm making promises for this year, but I have a collection of mugs from all over the world, from all different kinds of places. And each mug I, I got in a place with a person that brings me back to a very special exchange with another, with someone in my life. Yeah. Who's a and so when I have coffee, it's like I'm having coffee with them. And it makes me begin my day with gratitude. It makes me begin my day being thankful for something other than me and remembering that my story is part of a much bigger story. Oh, that's a cool thought. Yeah. And so it's always important to remember that to be grounded, that your story is always part of a bigger story. Um, it's never, you're not the center of it. Yeah. And so it's a great way to begin my day to bring to mind somebody important to me, somebody who's shared a part of my life or my story that they've left a great fingerprint on it that I love and care about. And, uh, it could be one of my kids or it could be a friend or it could be a colleague or a client at some point from their company. But it reminds me uh, of why I'm on the planet and who, for whom I do these things. And, and when you start eating that way, I think it, it, it sets your day off in a very different, even if your day becomes crappy and stressful and things don't go well, at least you begin from a different place than, as a victim or more self-involved than you should be or worried or frustrated or entitled. So would you say as you've grown older, your ego has played less of a role in your behavior? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if my wife would say that. Uh, um, you know, I think we all have egos and we all have those egos need to be fed. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I think when you overindulge them, it's not good. Um, I think, I think I'm, I, I would, be never presumptuous to say that it played, has played less of a role, Tanner. I think what I'd say is I understand it better. Yeah, uh, I'm aware of when my ego has a need, when I'm feeling unseen or um, insecure, or when I'm feeling unaffirmed or unappreciated, or when I'm feeling overworked or overcontributing, right. or some you know whatever one of those tapes are that says be dis be discontent, and to know now better how to manage that and how not to indulge it or not to be triggered in a you know irrational way um but i think all of our egos and mine certainly is remains alive and well <laughs> <laughs> yeah of course humility is humility is hard one yeah i was going to ask about humility in leadership you talk all about how a leader needs to be vulnerable they need to be getting honest feedback from employees they need to be open to like critical reviews how how do you practice such humility but also still have this like stature of being this like executive decision maker that people are going to like cede whatever power they have to to be you know channeled by this this leader how, what's that balance between humility and power well for me it, i'm never um unmindful of the privilege it is for me to be sitting alongside uh, the, the the real person in the chair right i'm not the chair um, so getting to sit as the advisor doesn't bear nearly the amount of risk and exposure and, 
and harsh, harsh realities that she or he has to deal with. So I never presume uh, a posture. I have to establish peership with them to be credible, and they have to see me as a colleague because I'm going to say hard things to them. But I think the thing I work harder than anything at is to make sure my clients always know I've got their back and that I care. And sometimes fighting for them means fighting with them. <laughs> and but I have their back, and I and, you know when I earn my right to give them really hard feedback, I also earn the right to praise them and to congratulate them and to thank them for their good work. Um, but my job pales in comparison to theirs when it comes to har- hardness. Um, so I would never presume that I bear any new degree of risk and exposure that they do. Yeah. What advice do you have for people when they're really fretting over hard choices? Where like there are serious trade-offs at, at play where you're going to potentially hurt a segment of your team or disempower certain people or you have to play favorites a little bit. How do you how do you help people work through hard choices? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, I think part of it, the the fretting issue is when I I want to understand what the fretting is, right? So, uh, is it a paralysis over your own fear of inadequacy or feeling like you're going to fail or how people, is it worried about how you're going to be perceived after you've made the choice? Are you worried about rejection? So I want to understand a little bit about what the angst is. Um, and, um, and if it really just is, this is a hard choice and people are going to be disappointed. Um, I help them accept that there's a paradox here, right? Sometimes being a leader means you have to do things that disappoint people. Leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's the definition of leadership. Wait, what? Say that again? It, leadership is the ability to disappoint people at a rate they can absorb. That's the, the hard reality of leadership. Um, sure, does it come with it? You got to inspire people and challenge people and coach them, and it's all there. But at the end of the day, if you're progressing an agenda, you're not making everybody happy. And if you're making everybody happy, you're definitely not doing your job. Um, that's just the hard truth of, of leadership. And so um, h- helping people understand that winning respect is more important than winning popularity, that there's a greater good you're serving here. Um, you know, so when it comes to firing someone on our team or laying off people or shutting down a project that's not going that no longer has the promise it used to, um, or having to cut resources because you know the marketplace has shifted. Um, these are unpleasant realities. Um, having to de- depart, having having to part company with somebody who's not performing. Um, I want to make sure that this person, as a leader, has certainly stayed true to their values, has done what they need to do, and done the best they can do with the data they have. But then we got to move on. We got to make a choice, and that no choice is a choice, and it's a bad one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, helping them through the difficulty of it, and be, having empathy for the difficulty of it, um, but also recognizing that. They're not going to have empathy for you, and nor should they. I remember, I remember watching a leader. Oh, it was horrible, doing announcing a layoff, and he what a buffoon. And he he opened up with, "You should be grateful you're not, you're not in my chair, having to make these announcements and make these calls." To the people being laid off. Man, he's got his job secure. He shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> Why would I? I was speechless. Um, and we had crafted talk points that wasn't in him. Um, and I just could not believe he would be so foolish as to say that. So I, it, it, what he had to do was very difficult. Um, why you burden them with that is, you know, anyway, so, so uh, there is an importance on how you deliver that choice. Oh my heavens. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no, 
easy way to deliver hard news, but there is a respectful and kind way to do it. People are resilient. They can take bad news, but will you try and keep it from them or soft pedal it or manipulate it or cover your own ass? That's disrespectful. That's insulting. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask about the failure rate of leaders. What What are the common reasons that people fail? And have you noticed anything that um, they talk about how failure kind of propels you into success? Have you seen major turnarounds where a leader had failed within an organization? They found your con- consulting firm and then all of a sudden they were at the top of their game. Is there some, some well, sort of pattern that, that creates that? I don't know that I'd say all of a sudden. Right. Um, we have stepped into disasters before and we've had to help turn them around. Um, and yes, failure does have a very formative effect on leaders. Well, when, they, when they allow it to, some leaders resist that um, formation. And that, that typically, typically what you don't learn from you repeat. And so, you know, a leader's willingness to, to take uh, and look in the mirror after something doesn't go well is an important part of how we know you're capable of learning. Um, but leaders fail for all kinds of reasons. Usually it's relational failure. They're, you know, they're, um, they don't build the right stakeholder relationships in an organization. They don't connect to the people who, on whose success they need to rely on, who rely on them. Uh, or they, it's failure of context. They don't. They miss the tea leaves. They don't read the environment around them well. They don't read the um, what's happening. They come in with a sort of a messiah syndrome or to slap on their ideas. And sometimes we set them up for that. Right? In the hiring process, we say things: "Hey, look at all these great brands you built. That's what we need." Or, "Hey, look at this great IT system you built. We need that." Yeah, as if they have some sort of template in mind when... Well, that's what we tell them. And so so when they come in to try and slap that template on you, ignoring the context, it doesn't work. They don't understand the problem. They just blame you. Yeah. Uh, and so th- th- we don't realize that that's a failure of context, right? Um, there may be wisdom from your past successes you can draw from, but leaders have to understand that the environment you're influencing has as much to change in you as you have to change in it. And if you come in with the presumption of you're there to change it, with your own savior syndrome, you're inevitably going to fail. Hmm. Yeah, what advice do you have for savior syndrome sort of leaders? I know that my generation has a lot of that going on. You, you are there to learn before you influence change. Hit the ground learning, not running. And assume that all you see is not all there is to see. And spend time learning the context before you try and change it. And because if you're not figuring out how it is, you have to adapt yourself, adapt your approach, adapt something about what you bring before you have impact, then you're you're highly exposed to fail. What if you were the original founder of the organization and you, you see yourself as the person that started the culture and has the agency to, to shape it in whatever way you see fit? Is that a dangerous position? Well, f- yeah, founderism, founderism can be very dangerous if you don't understand that at some point this thing needs to grow beyond you. Right, so you know, many founders preside over their own demise and the demise of what they've created because they, they stifle it, they suffocate it, because they won't let it grow beyond them, and their own personal identities become so intrinsically linked to what they've created that they see it as an extension of themselves, um, and when they can't separate themselves from it, uh, they're in the process of killing it. What opinions do you have on like a provocative leader like uh, Steve Jobs? I wrote an article about him in my Forbes column. You know, provocative is a good word. I mean, he he had his dark sides. He was he was brilliant. He was a, ter- he was a terrible leader. Yeah, it seems like that. But he, his company grew much beyond his own and is like still thriving. And yeah, so it's oh, sure. 
Sure, and people who who understood him care about him. I think I think his his second act, his return, went a little better. He's a little bit more humble, but he you know he had major ego issues. He I mean I think there was patholo- I think there was deep pathology there. I mean obviously a lot of narcissism there, um, and it's unfortunate because I'm I'm guessing he probably no one probably suffered more than him from those pathologies in terms of his own paranoia and isolation and loneliness and. Um, self, having a lot of self-contempt there for him to be able to impose that much critique on other people. And so um, so that he died of the kind of cancer he did was no surprise to me because that's typically what those kind of people die of. And sad. Um, and, you know, he could have, I mean, and, and somebody even offered to give him a, a major organ to help him live and he turned it down. So um, I can't, I mean, as, as much abuse as he issued on other people, I, I would imagine he privately suffered a lot. Um, ingenious and brilliant and visionary and ahead of his time, though he may have been. Mm. Right. So at the presidential level in our country, uh, like the U.S. president... What well, we're going to go there. We're going to go there. Uh, I want to go around there, but not, I, don't, I don't need any direct opinions of, of you on our current president. But I want to know, like, is the role of the president changing a little bit? Are we open to having, like, um, an Oprah Winfrey be our next president now that Donald Trump is and... Do you think that that the executive role is less political than it used to be? Maybe. No, it's actually more. It's more political. It's only political. It's only not. It's only not based on competence. Do they need to be a, a policy wonk? Do they need to like know how 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 a certain population will be affected by some budget revenue, or is it more about their ability to influence people a certain way? Well, you know, I, I did see on the newsstand today. Uh, in, it wasn't a tabloid either that said, "Yes, I'm running with her open picture." So maybe this, maybe it really is going to happen. Um, I, I, honestly, I think the gene pool for that job has been in a free fall for 20 years. Um, and it's sad. What do you mean that, by that? The gene pool for that? The, just being a basic competent leader, being somebody who, I mean, it's now about interpersonal skills and it's just about, about personality and a lot of sizzle and not a lot of steak. Um, and it's sad. It's just sad to me that we, as a nation, you know, of the slate of candidates we had available to us to pick the two worst candidates. And then it was the thing about an election of, you know, picking what, what you personally believe was lesser of two evils. Um, we, we've known for decades now that most people vote against, not for, right? So that when you vote, you're voting for not for that person versus more than you. I think it's been since before Reagan that people actually chose to vote for someone versus against somebody else. And how do I mean? And you know, democracy is being as as powerful and profound of a governing system as it is. It's the most. It's we've known for thousands of years of history. It's the most fragile, um, and we've known that most major democracies, right before they fall, become bifurcated. We have lots of historical, you know, examples of that. And I'm sad to watch what the polarization of our country, and the inability of our governors to govern, and how politics have replaced governance to an extreme degree. And it's just—it just makes me sad. It just makes me sad. You don't have any ad- advice on um, a leadership style that a president should have. Co- competence and kindness would be okay. Competent, both competence and kindness. I like <laughs> both. Um, haven't seen it in a long time. You know, uh, the next TED talk uh, that I did—it's—it's it's, it's done now, but it's published—was done at the Edward Kennedy. So it was in Boston at the JFK Library. And they filmed the set of the talks from the Edward Kennedy Senate floor. So it is a, at the Edward Kennedy Study Institute of the Senate on the library grounds. They actually have a replica of the Senate chamber. 
and that's where we filmed the TED Talks from. So I got to actually be on the Senate floor looking at the, you know, the audience. And, you know, I, all I could think of is how many fantasy conversations have we all had from this spot, you know, that if we could actually just get 15 minutes to preach it to those people, what would we say? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I have that. Gosh, I, I would pay money. I would pay money to hold them accountable and to say, I'm your boss and I should fire all of you. Um, I pay your salary and you are beyond failing. Um, and it, it's just embarrassing. It's an, they're, embar- they're absolutely an embarrassment. I mean, the popularity, I mean, look at the polls. What's the popularity? Like 22% the last check? I mean, it's, you know, but we elect them. That's why people don't understand. But we put them there. It's not like this happened to us. We chose them. And I think people don't appreciate that. We don't have to choose. We have to keep choosing them. We can get new ones. But if, um, there's a great organization uh, called New Politics. She was she was the speaker at the TED company I did, and what a brilliant woman! So she um, she did had done presidential campaign work and political campaign work, and she is now recognizing that the only way to do this is to replace them all. She's now walking, going around, and looking at, and she's found this great population of ex veterans and ex. Um, Peace Corps, AmeriCorps people yeah. as some of the best prepared people post. And she's recruiting them into politics. And she, I mean, I, I think it's been around for maybe 10, 15 years. She's got people into mayor jobs, state senate jobs, federal senate jobs, um, governor jobs. She, I mean, and you look at these people who, and they're, they're brilliant governors and they're insightful and they're good public servants and they're honest and they're bright and they're well prepared to lead. And I'm like, what an, I, I wish I could raise money for her. What a great, rather than sitting bitching like the rest of us about how bad it is, she's out there doing something about it. She's actually handpicking qualified people and recruiting them to, for, to public service. Um, and they're doing great jobs. And I, I, it's got to be exhausting when you're in the minority of competence, but it's an amazing nonprofit. So it gave me hope. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So like hope for the future. I want to I ask more about what you think students, high schoolers, college students, what can they do to prepare their their inner leadership abilities to to be an agent for the kind of change that, that you are in the real world? You know, the thing that's um, uh, about millennials, um, which I'm assuming you're, you're one of, um, you are the most socially justice-minded generation in history. Yeah, definitely. Um, and one, one of the books I wrote many years ago about you, about millennials, before you were called millennials, but it's called Leadership Divided, and it's about emerging leaders. Um, and I studied you intently when you were just coming on the scenes. Um, and, you know, interestingly, um, you were raised as a generation who was told you will change the world. And turns out you believed us. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you're actually wanting to get about doing it now, and we keep getting in your way. And I, I keep telling my people, our job is to get out of their way. Our job is not to make it harder for them. We told them they would do this. Lord knows the world needs changing. Why don't we help them? Um, and so I'm not, my daughter, I, I've raised two of them. I'm not at all concerned that it won't happen. I, I do think your impact on this world will be disproportionately greater than any other generation before you. Um, but you've got to be patient, which you're not. Um, you, you can't, <laughs> you, ha- you have to understand that you're, misunderstood you're often seen as entitled and overly ambitious and um presumptuous of advancement before you've earned it and all those things and there's dangerous partial truth into that but i I don't think i don't think you fear um me you know um 
failure in the way that most of us understand it. I think you feel not meeting your own standards. I think your desire for advancement isn't self-interest. It's, um, it's impact. Um, now, what you have to appreciate is that sometimes you're just not ready. <laughs> and you need some more time incubating before you have impact. Just because you've seen your peers that become overnight internet sensations doesn't mean you all should do that. doesn't mean they're actually that influential either. Um, and so you, you will get your shot. You know, you will get your turn. You will have your platform and you will have a say. It may not be in the next 20 minutes, but it will happen. Um, and um, on, on behalf of my generation, I apologize for getting in your way as much as we do. And I, I you know, n- know that there are some of us out here who do want to accompany you to the impact you desire to have and to the in- changes you want to make. Um, none of us are unmindful of the needed. Um, um, I do, we do. I think you just need a little bit more wisdom and a little bit more scar tissue on you to know how change really happens. Thank you. Those are. I think those are extremely accurate and like analyses of yeah of my generation. What do you recommend to to get scar tissue and to get training in this incubation period? What kind of what kind of things should should someone be doing? Start small. I mean, volunteer. Start small. Get, find causes that are important to you. Find places where you want to um, have impact and get involved. We find your voice. We find your voice of change. Um, learn not to be strident or judgmental. Learn not to be overly, sometimes you, you guys can be a little bit over appealing. There can be appeals. Um, sometimes your voice is strident. Um, you're understandably discontent with what you're seeing, but starting from a place of judgment or a place of harsh critique usually doesn't win people over. Um, you can never influence change from a place where you make people wrong. Um, one of the things about you that's both beautiful and concerning is that more so than any other generation, you guys can take hard, hard feedback without bristling. And sometimes I think you're like masochists because you're like, <laughs> tell me how bad I am. Tell me how bad I am. You know, no, I think that goes to like that whole reframing of like, this is not about my own ego. This is about like living up to my standards and you're, you're training me of how to do that. And so I, and my peers said, doesn't know what to do with that because they don't like giving hard feedback. They certainly don't like getting it. And so <laughs> a very different kind of mindset. So they don't. So they think you're feedback hungry. So I, one of the articles I wrote based on my book, We Issue Divided, was I, I opened the article with, um, just to sort of get at, because one of the things I hate are the labels. I hate that we've, you know, this baby, that somehow the you you were born makes a difference. This, so I wrote this article and it opened up with entitled or really ambitious, um, lazy, self-interested, blah, blah, blah. And I said, these are, don't these sound like the labels we give millennials? Yeah. These words opened up a 1969 Life magazine article describing baby boomers. Wow. So, turns out we're not all that different. And for me, the issue of emerging or incumbent leader is not which are you, it's which are you when. There are days I'm the millennial and you're the incumbent leader. Huh. You know, especially when it comes to this and how to use it. <laughs> yeah, the phone. <laughs> so, um, you know, I turn to my 25-year-old son and say, what do I do? And he leads me. So we've got to, this is, the generational issue is not one of demographics, it's one of relationship. And we've just got to get past this whole, now we have five generations in place. The year you are born is inconsequential. Um, How we relate to each other and the things that, that we're not as different as we think we are. That's what most of the research would, would reveal, that the millennials are not as different as we made them out to be. How do we come to realize that? 
do we go to coffee shops together? Do we have like workplace get togethers? What do you, what do you do? We're seeing that, you know, you, we, 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 when, when Leadership Divided came out, we did all kinds of workplace generational, inter, intergenerational experiments. And what people found was, I think we're a lot more alike than we are different. Because we are. Um, so we need to get over the whole, oh, they're different. And now this whole, I wonder what Gen Z is going to be like. Well, we'll find out when they get here. You know, but until then, just enjoy them. Um, so I think we've got to help you cultivate your voice, help, help you cultivate how you express your thinking. Um, what value you place on data, what value you don't place on data, um, how you make appeals, how you make critiques, how you offer vision. Mm. Because I think you all assume um, that what is self-evident to you is self-evident to everybody. I definitely have that problem, certainly. Yeah, that's spot on. And, and, and it gets you frustrated when it's not. And so you get short, short and impatient and curt and you get petulant. You get very petulant. And then people go, see, they're petulant. <laughs> and I don't think it's really, that's the truth. I just think that that's, you're so short triggered and you've got to learn to work through some of that stuff and be a little bit more um, long-minded that the changes you need to make are big. We, we've, we've worked really, really hard to screw it up this bad. It's not going to change overnight. Mm. Do you think it's important to focus on what you want to change? Yes. Okay. What and how and be more realistic about the when. Mm. Okay. So as finding your voice, all of which are probably hard for you. <laughs> as far as finding your voice, how has writing really influenced your voice? You've written eight best-selling books now. Do you have any advice for, for writers and how you know if you do need to be writing to be able to find your voice? Um, there's a lot of people out there who blog who suck at writing. They, they're, they're either incoherent, they're verbose. It's, I mean, so gosh, if you, I would say if you're going to want to write, learn to write well. There's, there's craft here, there's science here. It's real work, and you have to learn to do it well. And it's not for everybody, right? There's all other types of mediums to express yourself besides the written word. So if you're going to commit to writing, then learn to do it well. Um, but then, and then be disciplined. You, I mean, the, you know there's a lot of noise out there, a lot of noise, um, and a lot of content. And we're depositing more of it and more of it every day into this big sea of, of sameness. And um, it's unfortunate. And so if you're going to, you have to be disciplined enough to want to, um, express yourself diligently and consistently to find out what your niche and what your voice is and what your audience is and do all the work to build that. I mean, it's a lot of technical social media. You're doing it right here in this interview. It's a lot of work. It's not just about what you want to say. Mm. Yeah. I just say collaborate, find people that you, surely you have to appreciate that whatever it is you want to say, you want the only one that wants to say it or that you want the only one saying it <coughs> with, with the, with the wonder of technology, you could instantly find 5,000 people all over the planet who want to say the same thing you were. Build coalition. Learn mm. to build coalition. Best way to create movements of change. Don't feel like it has to be you. Um, find other like-minded, like-souled people saying similar things with similar efforts. Most of those efforts are very fragmented because there's too many of them. And coalesce them and build coalition with them and join forces. That's the best thing you could do. Mm. What's a movement right now? You mentioned the new politics, but what's another movement or 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 a set of leaders that that you really admire for how they're doing things right now? I love the B Corp. I love what the B Corps are doing. Um, uh, and there's a, a a group called Be the Change, the letter B, the Change. Um, and I'm just they're inspiring, right? I mean, they really are proving that capitalism 
can be harnessed for great good. And that these that we have a tax structure that allows, and the IRS allows co- companies to register as a benefit corporation and measure triple bottom line. I mean, I just, there's just, you know, if you look into the, the I think there's now over eight or 900 of them registered now. If you just look at their websites and what they're doing, every one of them is one more inspiring than the next. Um, and so I, that I can't cheer them on enough. I wish I had, I wish I had some of them as clients. So they're very different than a nonprofit. Yeah, they're, they're for-profit companies. These are for-profit enterprises. Um, they just measure and are expected by the uh, SEC uh, and IRS to measure social, financial, and environmental impact. Um, and their tax structure, they're required in their tax structure to prove it. Um, and uh, they're doing it. They're doing amazing things. Um uh, just at one at every one more brilliant idea than the next. Really exciting. You just go on and just just click on the links to the Beast Beat Court, what they're doing. You'll you will stay up all night. Cool. That's inspiring. Yeah. I would love to work for a B Corp and find my leadership within that. It's just great brain candy. All great brain candy. Cool. Yeah. I mean this the interview so far has been a lot of brain candy. Thank you so much. I wanna kinda of conclude with with your, your TED Talk on power, you talk about how each of us has an, a, a deep ability to develop our personal leadership. What are some final words you have around that topic for anyone listening to this podcast on purpose to develop a purpose-driven leadership style? Don't abandon your voice. Don't abandon your power. It's very easy to start with the assumption that I, I couldn't possibly make a difference or I have to make the difference myself um, or to, to give up and abandon your efforts. Recognize that influence takes a long time to garner. But, but find that your source of power, find the influence you want to have in your information, in your relationships, and stick with it. Don't be a flash in the pan. Don't, go, don't get bored easily. These are years and years and years of work, not months and months and months. And just know you're signing up for a long journey, but, but do it. The world needs what you have. Cool. Thank you so much. I would love to work for someone like you one day. I love your mindset towards my generation. and. Yeah, it's really cool how you, you seek to pull out some sort of authentic voice from leaders. You don't slap on like a template for what a good leader is. You really work from within and bring them you know, outward. I think that's really, really cool. Yeah, thank you. If you can, pick up a copy of Leadership Divided. I think you'd enjoy it. There's also um, on our website, there's an article called Bridging the Leadership Divide. Um, and I wrote it with a millennial. I, we, and, we wrote about our, and, we, and we actually chronicle our relationship in the piece about how you know how we how which are we when so i think you it's something you can just download from our website but uh but if you, i think you enjoy leadership divided uh i think you'd feel affirmed in it with my i i i, I wrote it too early i wrote it by like six years too early i wish i had waited six years later i knew so much more about you guys i wrote the sequel the work the bridging the leadership divide was the sequel book and it's also the title of that article and i i knew so much more then um, I think when I wrote Leadership Divided, I was still learning. I mean, the word millennial wasn't even a word yet in 2006 or seven, whenever that was. And I think you're just so misunderstood. I think it's, we, there was such a proliferation of consumerism. Like, how do we market to these people? I just think you've gone misunderstood too much. Um, and I think, you, I think many of you feel unseen. I think you feel watched, but not seen. Mm. Wow, that's a cool distinction. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving your time to talk about leadership and how it relates to purpose. And I definitely have a lot of uh, a brain candy uh, still to be munching on here in, in the coming days and weeks. 
Thank you. Well, Tanner, thanks for the chance to chat with you. Thanks for being flexible on your time. I think a lot of people need to hear this. Yeah, you give a lot of time and energy to, to teaching people. You, you could really, like you said, keep, be the best kept secret and, and all your clients could love you. And you do a lot to reach out to, to grabbing new talent. And yeah, I, I feel very inspired from talking to you. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. Right back at you. Go enjoy the rest of your day and uh, enjoy your meditation. Be safe out there in the woods. <laughs> all right, will do. So what actionable step are you going to take next? Do you have a lingering question or something you want help working through? Do you need support in doing what it's going to take to live your purpose? People of Purpose is here for you. Subscribe to the podcast and soak in the stories and words of our wonderful guests. Do you have any friends that might enjoy this episode or the podcast? Bring them on board as a podcast subscriber. If you want to actually see the guests behind the voices, as well as the purposeful people and communities I'm a part of around the world, Follow the podcasting journey on Instagram at People of Purpose Podcast. You can connect with our purpose-seeking community on Facebook at People of Purpose by liking and following our page. Know the minute each new episode is published, hear first about upcoming People of Purpose opportunities, and receive regular tidbits of inspiration and media I'm purposely perusing, pursuing, and pondering. It's simply a regular dose of goodness, intentionally filtered by me, to nourish your personal path of purpose. For the ultimate engagement, Join our intentional group, Purpose Seekers, from the Facebook page. Join in longer form discussions, link up with accountability partners, and share in opportunities and challenges to better know and grow in your purpose. Send me a direct message on either Facebook or Instagram if you want to talk privately and receive personalized guidance on how to raise your sails and right your ship. Come forth with your biggest dreams and aspirations, and I will do my best to connect you with the necessary resources and mentors from my network to start your trek along your personal path of purpose. Cheers, and here's to becoming 